Well, before you uh, get to Proverbs, I'm going I'm to stop you uh, as you do that. Go ahead and turn in your Bible with me to Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, we've come uh, in our study of Proverbs, we've just uh, introduced the book, and um, we've come to the verse that really sets the table for the whole book. It's a verse that outlines and highlights the theme of the book of Proverbs. Uh, and it is this little phrase called the fear of the Lord. And that'll be really the, um, the uh, title of the morning message uh, is the fear of the Lord. And we're going to spend the next several weeks talking about this very, very important concept and theme, uh, not just in the book of Proverbs, uh, but this is one of the themes really of the entire Bible. And so it is worth our time to stop and and um, uh, try to figure out what it uh, what it means and why it's so significant. Uh, you guys are most of you are familiar with Isaiah chapter six. This is Isaiah's uh, vision of the Lord, and I think it's a great story to kind of get our minds thinking in the right direction as we think about what is the fear of the Lord. Because uh, we want to start off today uh, trying to make sense of fear. Because the fear of the Lord, that's one of the challenges, is what does it mean to actually fear the Lord? And I think Isaiah will, will help us to see uh, what, where do we even start to think about fear and specifically the fear of the Lord. So follow along with me as I read. This, this is a great account. This is a historic account. This is not a pretend story or a fiction story. This is an actual historical account of uh, a vision that Isaiah had in his ministry and... Uh, So uh, it's familiar, I know, to many of you. Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings, and with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Now, if you can put yourself, so to speak, in Isaiah's sandals here for a moment and just imagine the the uh, the overwhelming emotional nature of this encounter. He experiences here what he calls a, a, a vision of, of the Lord sitting on his throne. So he, uh, God does not possess a body. We know that God is spirit. But there are times that uh, God, in order to reveal himself to people, will take on some sort of visual representation. And and you're familiar with these, right? Uh, you know, a burning bush or uh, the pillar of cloud, or uh, the Shekinah glory, or the angel of the Lord. Those are all examples of what theologians call theophanies, where God takes on this, this visual uh, presence in order to reveal himself in some way. So, so that's what's going on here. Isaiah is having a vision of God as this king who is high and lifted up in his temple. And then we can kind of picture in our mind's eye, as we look at the text here, what this is like. He is sitting on a throne that says lofty and exalted, and you imagine this huge, massive throne with this king uh, highly exalted in the air and it says here that the train of his robe that is the uh, the um, the material that would come off of the end of his robe uh, onto the floor filled up the temple so you can imagine the massive size and, and girth of this robe that the king of kings and the lord of the lords wears as isaiah uh, sees him in this vision L- literally uh, moving back and forth as this robe literally fills up every square inch of the temple area now, as Isaiah is taking all this in, in his vision, he, he is overwhelmed, not just by the, the holy presence of God himself, but of these angelic beings that, as it were, guard the throne of God and surround the throne of God uh, as they do. And we are introduced to them in verse 2. Notice with me, they're called seraphim. The, these are one of several different types of angels uh, that the Bible describes. And uh, we get a little bit of a description here. Uh, we can go elsewhere in Scripture and find... Uh, more detailed descriptions of them. These are these are horrific creatures. These are creatures that if you were to encounter them in real life, you would not want to take a picture and put them up in your living room as nice Christian decoration. 
Okay, you would not do that. That's, that's, you know, you go into Mardell Christian bookstore and you go over to the, the trinket section and they've got all these little angel figurines all over the place and you buy them and you decorate your house with them. Well, well, that's good and nice and cute and all. That, that's not remotely a biblical view of angels. Okay. These guys are, are horrific, literally in their presence. They are overwhelming. If, if this was something that you encountered, you would want to run away and hide. Now notice with me what happens. What, what are these seraphim doing? It says they are standing above him. So, so they are hovering, if you will. We find out later on they, they have a, a three pairs of wings. And one set of those wings are used for flight. So here's the Lord. He's high and lifted up in his temple. He's on his throne. Um, the train of his temple is wrapped back and forth, literally filling every square inch of the temple. And then these awesome, horrific overwhelming, scary creatures are above him hovering. And notice they have six wings. It says there are two that cover the face of these angels, so you can't, you can't see what their faces look like. With two, they cover his feet. And it says with two, they flew. Okay, so there, there's the... Uh, there's the picture there. And, mo- and most theologians understand that the covering of the face and the covering of the feet as proper because they are in the presence of the Lord. That, that emphasized the fact that they are, quote-unquote, on holy ground. They are in the presence of the Lord, and so their head and their feet are covered out of reverence for the Lord and out of, out of respect for His awesome and holy being. So there they are, these seraphim are, are above, hovering above, and it's not just that they're there sort of hanging out. Verse 3 tells us they are in this, this dialogue with one another. They are calling out back and forth, the text tells us, to one another these words. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And you, and you can just imagine the... the um, the sensory overload of this experience from Isaiah's standpoint. I mean, what he's seeing with his eyes, what he's hearing with his ears, and he is becoming overwhelmed as these angels, these awesome creatures in the presence of God, echo back and forth, holy, 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 the character of God. Uh, Of course, that word holy means uh, set apart or unique. There there is no one like the Lord. Uh, Holy is a word that describes God not just in his sinlessness and his perfect righteousness, although that is true. Holiness is a word that says there is something about God that is so unique. There is no being like Him. And and so He is other. We we might translate this other, other, other. There is no one like Him because He is God Himself. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Uh, I I love that little phrase, Lord of hosts. You you remember that from other places in the Bible? This is is God coming in His military attire. As I, I used to say, this is God in BDUs. This is God coming as the King of kings, the army captain of the host of heaven, of of all the armies of angels. He is coming in His battle array, as it were, here. And it says, the whole earth is full of His glory. Meaning you can't look in any any location throughout this universe and not see something of the glory of God. If we look to the heavens, we see the luminaries, the stars, the, the sky, the clouds, the planets, all these things that give glory to God because He put them there and He establishes them and He sustains them. When, when we look here on the earth, we see trees and grass and flowers. We see animals. We see creatures in the sea, creatures on the land, creatures flying in the air. All over this universe, we see creatures that reflect the glory and wisdom and awesome and power, uh, powerful nature of God Himself. And of course, we, when we look to human beings, people that were made in His image and likeness, we see something of His character and His creativity and His relational nature and His moral nature and His ability to have a relationship with other creatures at, 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 a, at a level that uh, you know animals cannot have. And of course, made to actually reflect the glory and character of God Himself was the the design of God in making human beings. And so Isaiah, as he's taking all these things in, he's hearing the sound of the seraphim, he is seeing uh, God in this vision high and lifted up, he is overwhelmed, and if that's not enough, (laughs) look at verse 4. And as he's taking all this in, the foundations of the thresholds of the temple suddenly begin to tremble. So as, as, as this is not enough, there's an earthquake. 
And the foundations of the temple literally are trembling under, under the, um, it says there, the voice of him who called out, meaning as these angels call out to one another, the sound of their voice is so loud and the frequencies are such that it literally resonates with the material structure of the temple and creates an earthquake in this place. And as he takes all this in, the temple, it says here, was beginning to fill with smoke. What would you do? Can you imagine what that must have been like? And Isaiah shows us in this, in this short little description of this vision why we ought to fear the Lord. Because the Lord is awesome in His being. The Lord is holy in His character. On your notes there, we see the holy nature of God in this text. He is overwhelming. He is all-wise. He is all-powerful. His, his presence literally makes our senses overload. He is perfect in His ways. He is righteous in His character. There is no sin in Him. He is not just holy. He is not just other. He is not just sinless. But He is holy, holy, holy. The repetition of that word there emphasizes the exponential nature of His character. He is exceedingly holy. He alone is holy is what the writer is getting at here. And as the commander-in-chief of all the armies, all the angelic beings of the host of heaven, the whole earth is full of His glory as the Creator, as the Sustainer. You do not, you do not want to mess with this God. Because in His character, in His nature, He is holy. And that, that recognition of who He is explains in part why we ought to fear Him. Because He is awesome in His character. He is splendid in His being. He is holy in His nature. Now notice also, we we get kind of a, a second reality here as Isaiah contemplates what he is seeing. Look at verse 5. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. And I guarantee, guys, if you or I were there, we would say the exact same thing. We wouldn't say, oh, God, isn't this neat? We wouldn't say, wow, cool. We would literally think that our life was about to end. Because a sinful human being, when he or she encounters the holy, awesome presence of the God of the universe... There is only one logical response. And that is certainly we are going to die. And that's what he says. Woe is me for I am ruined. What's he saying? He's saying, I'm going to die. Why? We think this is his God, right? This is the God that called him to holy service. He's the prophet of God. He's the spokesman. You would think, you know, hey, the boss showed up. Great. That's not his response. Why? Look at what he says, verse 5. Because I am a man of unclean lips. Now that doesn't mean, if you're new to the Bible, that doesn't mean that Isaiah didn't use a napkin, you know, when he was done with dinner. That's not what he's talking about. You have to think like a Hebrew with that phrase. A man of unclean lips was a sinner. Someone who was a sinful human being. And painfully aware of it. Not only he says, I am a man of unclean lips. He's saying, I am a sinner. I am unworthy. But also, verse 5, I live among a people of unclean lips. So it's not just, I am a sinful man. It's that I represent, as the prophet of God, I represent a people that are sinful, that are lost, that are alienated from this God. And Isaiah says this, Why am I ruined? Why am I certainly going to die? Because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. To, 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 remember, remember how um, uh, the New Testament describes this? God dwells in inapproachable light. 
God dwells in a realm that is so holy, it will annihilate you if you are not likewise holy. And Isaiah says, I'm a sinful man, I live among a people that is sinful, and my eyes have seen the one who dwells in inapproachable light. I'm dead. And that's the second thing we need to recognize. These are two truths that we have to embrace if we are to understand this whole thing called fear as we understand it in the Bible. The two truths we need to embrace are, one, the holy nature of God. We see that here. He is holy. He is perfect. He is other. He is sinless. He is righteous. He is just. He is overwhelming in His presence. He is all-powerful. He is all-wise. And He dwells in His holiness and inapproachable light. But we also recognize that people are sinful. And it is, this is the thing, it is the coming together of the holy God and sinful people that brings the issue of fear to center stage. That is the, that is the fear response And that is why we have to understand why fear is such a common theme in the Bible. Okay? Are you with me? Make sense? Okay, that's just preliminary. So so let's jump in here. Let's talk specifically now about fear. And you can follow along in your outline. Um, When the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it really describes one of two types of fear. And I want to introduce those to you today because if you don't have this understood in your minds, we are likely to misunderstand the biblical text, okay? So two aspects of the fear of the Lord, or two types of fear of the Lord, if you will. The first one is what I'm going to call terror fear. Terror fear. That is exactly what Isaiah experiences in Isaiah chapter 6. Terror fear. What is that? That is terror because of danger or threat. And as I put in the parenthesis there, that's pretty simple. Right? This is, I'm scared because I'm in danger. I'm scared because there is a threat of some sort. And we understand this. You know, if, if you um, uh, step out into the street and all of a sudden you see a car coming and immediately you experience fear, don't you? Because you know, as you evaluate very, in like a nanosecond, kind of the way God made us, it's amazing how it works, but, but very quickly we evaluate and experience that fear because we know that car can kill us. And that leads us, that fear is a good thing in that moment because it leads us hopefully to step out of the way. So when we think about terror fear, it's very simple. It's just terror because of a danger or threat. Now I want you to see that in Isaiah chapter 6 here, that God is dangerous. God is dangerous. God is a threat. We, We can't understand Isaiah 6 in any other way. Isaiah, what Isaiah says in verse 5 does not make sense unless God is a threat. Now, I would suggest to you, and this is, we're going to develop this down the road, but I would suggest to you that we do not live in a culture, even a Christian culture, even a church that views God as a danger or as a threat. But I would suggest to you on the basis of not just this verse, but the whole of Scripture, that the God of the Bible is dangerous. And to view Him otherwise is to adopt an unbiblical view of who He is. So I think in our day and age, in our culture, even in our church, we need, in a sense, to rediscover the danger of the God of the Bible. And that's not some radical thing. I mean, read the Bible. What do Adam and Eve do? As soon as they sin, what do they do? They run away from God and they hide. Why? Because God is a threat. Because He's dangerous. Okay? So terror fear, that's one... We're trying to figure out, what is the fear of the Lord? There's two aspects to it and we have to recognize these in the Bible. One aspect of the fear of the Lord is terror fear, as we're calling it here. It's very simple. The second aspect is a little more complicated, okay? We'll call it awe-fear. Awe-fear. It is awe that leads to honor, love, and worship. We understand terror-fear, right? Threat, ah! Right? That's pretty easy. But awe-fear is much more complicated. 
If we put off fear under the theological microscope, we see that there are several components that make it up. It's a, it's an amazement. It's a wonder at who God is. It elicits respect for Him as God. It, it, it produces a reverence, an honor for Him as our God. It leads to this, this love and admiration that, that causes us to want to worship this God and to follow this God and to obey this God and to serve this God. The fear of the Lord is this, is this complicated response that believers have as we stand in awe of the greatness of our God and it both, it both scares us and attracts us at the same time. That's why I said it's kind of complicated. And we'll kind of develop this as it goes. But let me just give you some, some words, some synonyms to kind of begin to think about this. It is like it's profound respect mingled with love, devotion, and awe. So if we just kind of put some synonyms up there, we're thinking about respect, esteem, reverence, honor, adoration, glory. Those are all components of this thing that we're calling awe, fear. And if you don't understand that, there's a lot of stuff in the Bible that isn't going to make sense because... The Bible's going to say things like this. This man fears the Lord. Abraham fears the Lord. Job was a God-fearing man. And we go, is that a good thing? Does that mean he walked around scared of God's eternal lightning bolts that might come down from heaven if he were to do so? Is that what that means? Actually, that's not what it means. When the Bible describes someone who fears the Lord, that is a synonym for a believer. That's what a belie- that's one of the ways a believer is described in the Old Testament. And, and what it's getting at is that that person walks in this sort of awe-fear of the Lord. That there is an allegiance, there is an honor, there is a love, there is a worship, there is an obedience, there is a reverence. And that's what characterizes that person's life. So when we read about men and women in the Bible who fear the Lord, that that says something objective about their spiritual condition. It says that they are, in fact, a believer walking in these ways before the Lord. So it's a good thing. Now, what I want to do is try to develop these two. uh, So I'm just not making this stuff up here. I want to actually show you in the Bible where we see these two facets of the fear of the Lord, the terror fear and the awe fear. So if you're ready for the the jet tour through the Bible, please turn with me back to Genesis chapter 3 as we start there. Uh, I alluded to it a moment ago, but I want to develop these for you so that you see them clearly with me in the pages of Scripture here. By the way, we had a great uh, start to BCDC... uh, this past weekend, Friday and Saturday, hosted up at Calvary Bible Church in Fort Worth. I know some of you were there. Uh, our, our annual training conference in discipleship and counseling. Uh, so thank you for praying for that. Uh, that was a, a great time there. Uh, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, and, and you know the story. Um, God has made Adam and Eve. He has called them into a relationship with uh, one another in marriage at the end of chapter 2. And they are walking with God, the the perfect couple living in paradise, walking with God. And at the beginning of chapter 3, of course, we we, uh, know that as the temptation and the fall. And uh, Adam and Eve are tempted by uh, Satan's enticements. And uh, they choose to rebel against God and eat from the tree that God had clearly commanded uh, them not to eat from. So they eat. Verse 6. Chapter 7, what happens? Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves and together and made themselves loin coverings. It's interesting. They experience guilt and shame for the first time, so what do they want to do? They want to hide. They want to hide from one another. Verse 8, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. There it is. They hide from God. Verse 9, Then the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. There it is. That's, that's the first instance of fear in the Bible. Why? What's going on? It's terror fear. We have broken the law of God. We are experiencing this, this, this thing called guilt that human beings had never experienced before. 
And they knew instinctively that they were in big trouble. They understood that they were in danger, and so they hid. And Adam says here, I was afraid. So we see terror fear coming in this uh, very first instance way back in Genesis chapter 3. Flip to the right to Deuteronomy chapter 2. Let's develop this a little more as as we move on in redemptive history here. Uh, Deuteronomy, of course, is a Moses' final sermon uh, right before he dies as the people are going to be led under Joshua's command into the promised land. And um, so he is sort of reiterating the law. He is reiterating uh, what's going on in these uh, verses here. And uh, so in chapter 2, he is recounting the wilderness wanderings of the previous generation of Israelites. Remember, he's got a brand new audience. He's got the children and the grandchildren of those generations sitting in front of him, ready to go over the river into the promised land. And so Moses is going to go up on the mountain. He's going to die. And so he gives one more sermon. He's got a brand new, fresh audience, this new generation of Israelites. And so he's recounting the wanderings and really the sins of the previous generation. And he says in Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 25, he says this, This day, this day I will begin to put the dread and fear of you upon the people's Everywhere. This is actually God talking through the prophet here, through Moses. I will, this day I will put the dread and fear of you upon the peoples everywhere under heavens, who, when they hear the report of you, shall tremble and shall be in anguish because of you. What's God saying? God's saying, I'm going to put this terror fear in the minds and hearts of all the people around you as you come into the promised land so that they will run away from you. There's terror fear again. To turn the page uh, to chapter 5. And look at verse 23. As Moses recounts um, Moses' uh, work of mediation uh, in the, the golden calf and, and those events, listen to what he says, verse, chapter 5, verse 23. And it came about when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire. So Moses is thinking back to the Exodus time where God descends to Mount Sinai, the fire and the smoke, the lightning, the earthquake, and he gives the law, okay? That's, that's the context, okay? It came about when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. We have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man, yet he lives. You understand uh, the, the miracle that that was that they actually lived to tell about this encounter with a holy God. Verse 25, Now why why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. For if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer, then we shall die. There it is, terror, fear. For Listen to this. For who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? They're saying, who is it? That, 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 that doesn't happen. People die when they encounter the holiness of God in that type of personal encounter. And so, so he goes on to describe uh, the incident. Listen to Moses' conclusion, verse 29. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me. There it is. And they would keep my commandments that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. There's this awesome encounter with the holy nature of God speaking out of the fire. And Moses says, you know what I hope that accomplishes? That these people will fear the Lord. They will stand um, in, in terror of his presence. Okay, We see it again in, in 1 Samuel. Chapter 12. Turn the page over to 1 Samuel chapter 12. Uh, you remember Samuel was uh, the last of the judges of Israel. And uh, really his last, um, uh, his last act was to install a king, Israel's first king, a guy named Saul. And so uh, we're at the very beginning. Uh, Saul has just been confirmed to Samuel as the king in chapter 11. And in 1 Samuel chapter 12... Uh, God is going to confirm uh, the kingship of Mr. Saul. 
Okay, look at verse 15 of chapter 12. And if you will not listen to the voice of the Lord, this is uh, God talking to um, uh, talking to Samuel about Saul. Okay, if you will not vi- listen to the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the command of the Lord, and the hand of the Lord will be against you as it was against your fathers, even now take your stand and see this great thing which the Lord will do before you. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call to the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and then you will know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, by asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called to the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and all the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. That doesn't mean they were like, wow, that's so cool. Look, God can make it rain on command. Isn't that neat? This is... God demonstrating through the weather, through the awesome reality of commanding the weather, that these people have greatly sinned by demanding of God a king that God has said not to do. So that they would fear him, that they would see him as a threat, as a danger to violate his clear commands. Okay, and and on and on. You get the idea. Um, So there's our verses. Okay, so let's sum this up. Terror fear is the appropriate response of sinful people encountering the Holy God. Terror fear is the appropriate response of sinful people encountering the Holy God. And terror fear occurs because God is dangerous to sinful people. That's that's the idea here. Okay? Terror fear occurs because God is dangerous to sinful people. Did you get that? Now listen to John Murray, uh, the the late theologian John Murray, one of the uh, finest Bible scholars um, of recent memory. Listen to Murray. It is the essence of impiety not to be afraid of God when there is reason to be afraid. You guys okay with impiety? It means ungodliness. It is the essence of being wicked and ungodly. To not fear God when there is a reason to fear Him. And that's the point of this. It's interesting. Um, what does the Bible tell us in Psalm chapter 14, verse 1? What does the fool say in his heart? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And that's why, if you were paying attention to Pastor Terry's sermon a couple weeks ago, all people start off with no fear of God. Remember Romans chapter 3? As, as Paul unpacks the depravity of people, and he summarizes what does it mean that all people are born into sin and they are depraved? It's summed up in that last little quote in Romans chapter 3. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And this is where all people begin. It is the essence of impiety not to be afraid of God when there is reason to be afraid. And there is great danger, there is great reason to fear God when us, we in our sinfulness, encounter God in His holiness. And yet, because we are born sinful and foolish, guess what? We come into this world with no fear of God before our eyes. All you it, Turn on the news tonight. Read the morning Sunday paper, if you haven't already done that already. Maybe some of you have already done that. Open your favorite news app. Go to your favorite news blog. Read what's going on. And the only way you can make any sense of what is going on in the world today is simply to understand there is just no fear of God before the eyes of people. That's it. That explains everything that is wrong in the world. It really does. And yet we've just learned (laughs) that's the right response. So our sin makes God a danger. And our sin also makes us blind to that danger. 
Okay. Now, by the way, this is not just an Old Testament phenomenon, unless you think, well, that's the Old Testament. You know, people were afraid of God and that, you know, God doesn't show up in fire and smoke. You know, Jesus shows up. Remember, he's like Mr. Rogers. You know, he's a nice guy, wants to be your neighbor, you know, with a sweater. Some of you are too young to know Mr. Rogers. Ask your parents or your grandparents about that. Um, but, um, but that is, that is not, it's not like God is this scary, holy, fear-evoking guy in the Old Testament, and then Jesus shows up. It's like God 2.0, and he's this nice guy that just wants you to be nice. And don't take my word for it. Let me show you. Turn in your Bible to Luke chapter 12. This is not just an Old Testament phenomenon. It is not just an Old Testament phenomenon. Jesus spoke about terror, fear, and how appropriate it is. Listen to this. Luke chapter 12 Verse 4. Are you there? Jesus is speaking. And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body. And after that, have no more that they can do. Verse 5. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, Fear him. Now, who is that? There are a lot of people who think that what Jesus is talking about here is the devil. But I'm here to tell you the devil doesn't have that much power. The devil does not determine who is judged and who spends eternity in that judgment. Who, who is it describing here? It's God. He's saying, you know, there are some people in this life that can kill you. They can take your life. But that's not who you really need to fear. You need to fear the one who, when that killing is done, has authority to judge you and send you to an eternity in hell. That's who you need to fear. So we see that this terror fear of God is not just an Old Testament phenomenon. It's something that Jesus spoke about. In fact, Jesus commands us, fear him. I remember in the 90s when I was in high school, there was a company. You remember the company? They made t-shirts that said this. No fear. Some of you remember that, right? The No Fear t-shirt company. And that was sort of a, a, a fad at the time. Um, and when I think about that shirt, I think about that company, that, that's describing where all people start. Is that we start off without a fear of God. And yet Jesus says, the beginning of sanity the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom is to fear the one who is a threat and who is a danger. So when we think about kind of the progression of fear, we start off with no fear. There's no fear of God before their eyes. That's the fool. And Jesus is saying the first step towards sanity is to fear God in the sense that He is a danger or a threat. We need to learn with Isaiah to contemplate ourselves in light of who God is and to say with Him, woe is me. I'm a dead man. Because God in his holiness, is a threat and a danger to my unholiness. Okay? All right, let's move on. I, I said there are two aspects of this thing called uh, fear, the fear of the Lord. We've talked about terror fear. Let's talk about awe fear now. Awe fear. And uh, we'll just let's just look at a couple of examples here uh, for sake of time. Uh, turn in your Bible back to Psalm 33. What is awe fear? Awe fear is the response of believers as they contemplate the nature and the works of God. Awe fear is the response of believers as they contemplate the nature and works of God. Let me show you some texts. Um, there are two, ca if we take, and I did this for you so you don't have to do this. If you look up the word fear as it relates to God in the whole Bible and you focus on 
when is that Bible talking about a fear of the Lord in terms of awe or reverence or respect? You will find that those verses tend to fit in one of two categories. We discover awe fear, meaning that the fear of the Lord in terms of this reverence, this amazement, this awesomeness, we discover that in two realms. When we think about God as the creator and when we think of God as the deliverer. And those are the two sort of categories that these verses come to us in. Let let me prove that to you. Look at Psalm chapter 33, verse 6. I love this. By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps and storehouses. How do we respond to that when we think about the character of God in creation? Verse 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. There it is. Let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of him. Why? For he spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. Now see with me by context that the psalmist does not intend this fear and this awe to be, wow, God made the world, I want to run away, I'm scared. This is, God made the heavens and the earth? He spoke and it came to pass? He commanded and it happened? He spoke out of nothing and there was something? What sort of God is this? You remember what the disciples said as they contemplated the deity of Jesus himself that day on the Sea of Galilee in the boat? Who is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? And the the gospel writer tells us they were filled with fear. Overwhelming, awesome, amazing, humbling, reverence and honor to the God who speaks and sustains creation just by the word of his mouth. So we see that there's some wonderful verses there. Um, Notice also we see this awe fear in areas of deliverance. And let me me just show you one of these. This this is really interesting. Turn back to Exodus chapter 14. We'll see if we can... uh, Uh, at least finish this part of the story. Exodus chapter 14. Uh, As you're turning back there, let me explain to you the context of Exodus 14. Uh, What's happening? Uh, The Israelites have been enslaved in Egypt for all of these years. God raises up Moses and Aaron, and they go and they they, uh, call for Pharaoh to let the people go. And you know the story. There's a series of plagues and and God uh, convinces Pharaoh through those plagues. And eventually he sends them on their way. So here's the Israelites. Uh, uh, Bible scholars tell us that there, there could have been as many as two and a half million Israelites. Uh, that's just the men. Uh, so obviously even more than that. Leaving Egypt, they're heading for the Red Sea. They get to the Red Sea. And all of a sudden they notice what's going on. Pharaoh changes his mind. And he calls his armies together and they mount their chariots and they quickly come in pursuit. Now, if you've ever gone grocery shopping at Kroger with your grandkids or your small kids, you know that there, there is no moving quickly when you have children uh, coming beside you, right? You've done this before. So think of the pace of families and the pace of guys with chariots and horses and they very quickly overtake them. And you remember God commands Moses... Uh, to part the Red Sea with his staff, which they do. The text tells us they were able to come across on dry land. And so they come, all two and a half million of the people, plus wives, plus kids, plus their animals, their stuff. Remember, they plundered the Egyptians. So, so they're bringing all this through the Red Sea. They go across. They get. They see the army coming. God holds off the army for a little while with the pillar of fire that comes down and, and blocks off as a, a, a spiritual blockade, so to speak, so they can't quite get there. The last Israelites move along. Here comes the army. The sea is still parted. They come through the Red Sea. And that moment again, God commands Moses in Exodus chapter 14, verse 13. What does he say? Do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord. And so that's exactly what happens. They they continue their pursuit. Now the Egyptians try to come through on dry land. God causes their carts to swerve and break. Their chariots are falling apart. They come into the Red Sea. 
And in verse 27 of Exodus 14, we'll pick up the narrative there. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea, and the waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them, and not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. So if you can picture with me as the Israelites were standing on the opposite shore, we have just literally been running for our lives. Our kids are there. They're scared. They're crying. Our families, our livestock, we're tired, we're exhausted. We turn and we look back and we see the sea come back over and literally wipe out the strongest army on the earth. And as you and I might have been sitting there with our children, comforting them, watching floating dead bodies of Egyptian soldiers in the sea, the divine commentary says this, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. They're coming to shore. Verse 31, this is the point. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in His servant Moses. They stood there shocked and horrified. Have you ever, you ever had that, that type of fear before? Have you ever almost been in a car accident? I've had that happen to me. And you, 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 you barely get out of the way just in time. And you're sitting with your car pulled over, your emotions are just, you're overwhelmed, and you're kind of like, you're like shaking. You ever been there? You're shaking, you're trembling because of what just happened. You were just delivered from great danger. That's what happened here. And the response, they feared the Lord. That fear, that awe, that, that, that reverence, that amazement, that thankfulness came as God delivered them from the Egyptians. So we see awe, fear. When we think about God as creator and his creation, we see awe fear when we think about God and his deliverance. So we might define awe fear as this. It is the response of believers as they contemplate the nature and the works, particularly God's deliverance of the Lord himself. Okay? Now, that's all introduction. Turn with your Bible, turn your Bible with me to Proverbs chapter 1 now. Are you with me? You got a little bit of understanding of the fear of the Lord now? Why did we need to do all that? Oh, by the way, that, that's the third element here, is fearing God in terms of awe or reverence. Okay. So, so really, you understand that the goal as a human being is to go from this place to this place, right? We, we don't, we're not just fearing God because He can send us to hell. We want to embrace God as the deliverer. And in that moment, the danger fear, the threat fear is turned to awe fear. Because, what does Romans 8, 1 say? There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about that later on, but I had to say that just to give you some hope there. Okay, so Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. All that was introduction for this verse. Ready? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. What's he saying? All right thinking about anything begins by anchoring our thoughts under the awesome character and nature of God, that we would fear Him as the Creator. We would fear Him as the Deliverer. We would fear Him as the Judge. 
Because the fool says in his heart there is no God. The fool starts off in ignorance. To know anything, guys, to know anything rightly is to start by acknowledging God in everything. We must fear Him and build our understanding of everything else, our knowledge about everything else. So there's so much that we need to say here, but for now, all I want you to see is this. For Solomon, the fear of the Lord is really the theme of his writings. He starts off his writings in Proverbs saying the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. He concludes his writings in Ecclesiastes chapter 12. The end of all things is this. Fear God and keep His commandments. And that's where he concludes. It's the theme of his writings. And as we're going to see as we close here that the fear of the Lord is the theme of Proverbs. So we have to know something of what that means as we come to this book. All right? Well, we're, ju- we're just scratching the surface, guys. We're just, just barely out of the gate. We have a lot more ahead of us here, and I hope that you're excited as I am as we try to understand what does it mean to fear the Lord so that we can walk in wisdom and knowledge um, and uh, in obedience to God. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this uh, quick little tour of uh, what it means to fear you. Uh, And Lord, I pray that uh, this wonderful theme of the Bible would come alive to us as we set our hearts and minds to study it in the coming weeks. Father, we want with with the believing men and women of old, we we want to be known as men and women who fear the Lord, uh, who who reverence you, who honor you, who, who love you, who worship you, who serve you, and that that would provide... Uh, the, the theological playing field, the theological starting point for everything else that we can know, everything else that we want to know that will give us wisdom and, and confidence in your ways. Lord, make us to fear you. Make us to stand in awe of who you are in your nature, in your character, in the fact that you create and sustain and you deliver. Father, will you humble us as you did Isaiah and as you did Moses and as you did Daniel, these men and women of old. Will you humble us that we might walk in in fear and reverence and respect and honor of who you are. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.